0: So our scripture passage this evening is another Advent text. It's actually also a um, triumphal entry text, but uh, I wanted to use it for an Advent text tonight. It's Zechariah 9. We'll read verses 9 to 17. Zechariah is close to the end of the Old Testament. I will tell you the page number. I got Zechariah 9 is... On page 1480 is where Zechariah 9, verse 9 begins. 1480 in your Pew Bibles, also the words will be on the screen. Zechariah 9, beginning at verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem, see your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. Return to your fortress, O prisoners of hope. Even now I announce that I will restore twice as much to you. I will bend Judah as I bend my bow and fill it with Ephraim. I will rouse your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and make you like a warrior's sword. Then the Lord will appear over them. His arrow will flash like lightning. The sovereign Lord will sound the trumpet. He will march in the storms of the south, and the Lord Almighty will shield them. They will destroy and overcome with sling stones. They will drink and roar as with wine. They will be full like a bowl used for sprinkling the corners of the altar. The Lord their God will save them on that day as the flock of his people. They will sparkle in his lands like jewels in a crown. How attractive and beautiful they will be. Grain will make the young men thrive and new wine, the young women. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Oh, it's still there. So you guys probably all know this, but most Jews in the first century missed Jesus as their Messiah and King. They missed Jesus as their Messiah and King because they were expecting a different kind of Savior. I mean, they thought that their savior, that their Messiah would be this this mighty political slash military deliverer who would would lead his people to, to victory, physical, tangible victory over Rome. They were certainly not looking for a lowly savior born to a poor couple in a Bethlehem stable. And they certainly could not conceive at that time of a suffering savior who would offer himself as the sacrifice for sinners. And so, tragically, they missed the coming of their king. You know, as I was thinking about this, I I had to come to the conclusion that many people today still miss Jesus because of wrong expectations. They look for a savior who acts more like a a genie that comes from a lamp, someone who is kind of obligated to grant their every wish here and now. They want a savior who will instantly get them out of trouble, a savior who will solve their deepest problems, but at the same time, they want a savior who will pretty much stay out of their way when things are going good. They pretty much want a savior that's not gonna demand too much of them. Well, in order to joyfully welcome Jesus as our king, we need to properly understand who he is. Now, our text this evening stands as one of the great messianic prophecies of the Old Testament, and its message is this. Because Jesus Christ is king, and he is coming to reign over all the earth, we who believe in him, We who are subject to him have every reason to rejoice greatly, to rejoice greatly even now as we await his coming. But you know, that said, we should also recognize with regard to the rest of the world that generally the news of a coming king isn't necessarily cause for great joy. In fact, the first half of Zechariah 9, the half that we didn't read, predicts the coming of Alexander the Great, who we know from history ruthlessly conquered Israel's neighbors. Obviously, the news of Alexander the Great's coming would have brought terror and fear to those who were in his path. I mean, Alexander the Great's coming often meant death for all the men and a life of slavery for all the women and children. Why? Because he was not primarily concerned about the well being of his subjects, he was primarily concerned with his own power and dominion. Bringing it closer to our context, though, Because hopefully we don't have an Alexander the Great waiting in the wings to take over the United States. We should also understand that it is difficult, difficult to accept the news of a coming king because there is a sense in which all of us want to rule our own lives. We want to make our own decisions, we want to set our own course. We want to follow where our heart leads. And who is anyone else to tell us what we ought to think or to say or to do? Now, we can accept uh, government interference to a certain degree, a limited degree, as long as it doesn't get too close. But let's admit, if a king or someone in authority started trying to control every aspect of our lives, uh, how we do business and and how we relate to others and, and how we speak and think, we would resist with everything we have, wouldn't we? Wouldn't we? Well, let's be careful. Because you should know that is precisely the kind of king that Jesus is. He is rightfully Lord of all people and all aspects of our lives. In other words, for those of us who believe in Jesus, for those of us who have uh, submitted our lives to him, he's the one who gets to call the shots. He's the one who gets to call the shots because we trust him with everything that we have. And that includes saying to him, Jesus, you know better than I do how my life ought to go. And referring to the coming of Jesus, the Messiah King, Zechariah proclaims, How are we to respond? Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. And the rest of this passage kind of describes this king, explaining why his coming ought to bring about great joy within us. Because if we understand who this king truly is and what his coming will mean for all the earth, We will rejoice gladly and greatly at the good news of his advent. And so, the first point I want to make tonight is that Jesus Christ is King. That phrase translated, Jesus, your King, is coming to you, can also be translated, the King is coming for you. That is, for your benefit. So, this is not the kind of king that Alexander the Great was, or many rulers who were easily corruptible throughout history and even today. Jesus isn't like those sorts of leaders, those sorts of kings. Your king is coming for you, that is, for your benefit. But here's the catch. To receive the blessings and the benefits that this king offers, we need first to recognize our need. Isn't that so often how it is in the Christian life? That first we need to go to the depths. First we need to look at ourselves square in the mirror and be able to identify and admit what's wrong before the good news of salvation that God has given to us through his son Jesus Christ makes any sense. And we value it the way that we should. We need first to recognize our need. Now in context, in context meaning the biblical context in which Zechariah is writing, Israel was under the domination, the dominion of foreign political powers. They were at that time and place totally incapable of freeing themselves by will or by force. But the Messiah King, the Messiah King of whom Zechariah prophesied did have the power to deliver them. And he had their best interests at heart. That was the Jews' great hope, right? When is that guy gonna come? But now let's move into our context. Spiritually, we confess that that we too are under the domination or dominion of something, namely sin. Sin sin that leads us to our very destruction, sin that we are absolutely unable in and of ourselves to free ourselves from. And when we come to understand this tragic truth, then we will, of course, welcome with great joy this promised king and the benefits that he offers. He comes for you. Second point. Jesus Christ is the king of authority. Now, authority, of course, is historically bound up with the idea of kings, especially in the ancient world. A king was someone who had authority over a kingdom or a territory, right? Now, today, it's not exactly the way it works. Today, some monarchs, such as those in England, for instance, have almost no authority. They function as uh, official state dignitaries. Their their desires might have some weight in government and with those who run the government, but, but they really don't have much authority. By contrast, Jesus Christ, even in his first coming as a humble suffering servant, possessed a quiet but total authority over all people and events. We learn that from the gospels. And the uniform picture that all of the four gospels paint is that Jesus was completely in charge and in control of the events that surrounded his life and ministry. In other words, Jesus was never a helpless victim, okay? Jesus was someone with authority, even God made flesh, even in his human form. And even when all was said and done, no one took his life from him. John's gospel makes clear that he laid it down on his own initiative. And so Jesus is the king of authority who controls all things and works them according to his purpose, even the events surrounding his death. Acts 2 verse 23 says this, this man, Jesus, was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Jesus is the king of authority. And so before we move on, I I think that we uh, should personalize this a little bit. Is Jesus the king, your king, here and now? Does he rule in your heart and in your life as savior and lord? Savior and lord. Lord. Now that question I think is vital because the idea that you can kind of choose Jesus as your savior now and then consider whether or not you want him to be your Lord or your king later, if you wish, if life goes that way, if you need him is nonsense. See, while submitting to Jesus' lordship is a lifelong process it begins at salvation. Those two are connected. They cannot be separated. And you know, actually, this submission to Jesus as king and Lord of your life right now functions as the assurance that a believer enjoys regarding his or her salvation. That is one quick way, quick way To prove to yourself that you're saved is if you want to be under the lordship of King Jesus. Third point, Jesus is the king of righteousness. Zechariah says that the coming king of Israel, the Messiah, is righteous or just, The Old Testament word is tzaddik, and it means either righteousness or justice. So those are interchangeable. In other words, he will be a king who administers justice in his kingdom. As I mentioned before, Jesus is not corrupt like like so many human authorities in this world. No, he will be just in his administration of his kingdom because he is righteous and incorruptible in his very person, the perfect son of God. He's not out to take advantage of his subjects for personal gain. He already has it all. Instead, he has our best interests at heart, and he wants to share his glorious heavenly riches with us. Fourth point Jesus Christ is the King of salvation. In other words, Jesus is endowed with salvation. Now, biblical scholars debate whether the the nuance of this verb is passive or reflexive. I'm just gonna quickly tell you what the difference would be. If the verb is passive, the meaning is either that Jesus was endowed or clothed with salvation from on high or that he was himself saved through some ordeal like the, the cross and the resurrection. If the verb is reflexive, It means that he reveals himself to us. So he is doing the revealing. He reveals himself to us to be the savior. But I want you to understand that the difference does not affect the implication here, okay? The implication is this. Either way, Jesus came to bring salvation to his people. Now, for the Jews the salvation that the Messiah would bring had national political overtones. For centuries, the Jews had been threatened by hostile nations. We still see that that is going on today. Nations that wanted either to annihilate them or to enslave them. And therefore, when God promised them a deliverer, they thought of one who would reign on the physical throne of David and bring salvation from all of their enemies and and from the hands of those who hated them. But at the same time, for the Jews, it wasn't just a national salvation. They also, like us, recognized a personal dimension to salvation that the Messiah would bring related to an individual's deliverance from God's wrath upon their sin. Just as the angel told Joseph in Luke, you shall call his name Jesus, for it is he who will save his people from their sins. That's not necessarily a corporate first view of the salvation Jesus brings. That is a very personal and individual view of the forgiveness of an individual's sins. the New Testament makes clear in conjunction with Old Testament prophecy that that in his first coming, Jesus did indeed come to bring spiritual salvation by offering himself as the sacrifice to satisfy God's justice, righteousness again with regard to sinners. Romans 6.23 says this very concisely, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, I went here a little bit this morning. I'm going to go here a little bit this evening, too, because it's important for us to be reminded of. But there are two wrong notions that may very well keep people out of heaven, and they usually go together. And I want to caution you against these ways of thinking. First... Many people throughout history and today wrongly believe that God is, he's just too loving to send a generally decent, moral people to hell. He's just too loving, he's too kind for that. But I would argue that that kind of thinking underestimates, vastly underestimates the seriousness of our sin. According to Scripture, theologically, we understand that a single sin in thought, word, or deed is enough to condemn a person to hell because that is an act of rebellion against an eternal and everlasting God. And that would compromise God's justice in favor of his love, which also would compromise his holiness, which cannot be compromised. So that's the first wrong notion. Secondly, people wrongly believe that most of us are good enough as is to qualify for heaven. I mean, sure, we all have our faults, but we're not murderers or terrorists or child molesters. So we just figure that when all is said and done, the scales are going to tip our way when we stand before God because we were sincere and we meant well. You know what? Many Jews made that mistake too. They thought that since they were descendants of Abraham, that they observed and practiced the ritual laws given to them by Moses, that and because they were better than the Gentiles, that God would, would just not judge them. They wouldn't, he wouldn't judge them. Their error was that in order to get into heaven, It requires perfect, blameless, spotless righteousness. It takes a perfect righteousness to qualify for heaven. And that is precisely where Jesus the king's cross comes into the picture. On the cross, the perfect son of God, the perfect king, offered himself as the substitute for sinners. And so, brothers and sisters, someday you're going to stand before God, either clothed in your own goodness, which will condemn you, or clothed in the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. God credits that righteousness to you the moment that you renounce your trust in your own righteousness and put your complete trust in Jesus as Savior and King. Our passage from Zechariah teaches that Jesus came the first time bringing salvation, but it teaches that Jesus will come the second time as judge of all the earth. Now, if you have faith in Jesus as your personal Savior, then you can rejoice at the thought of Him even coming as a judge, right? because he himself has already paid the penalty for your sins. You can welcome the king who is also the judge because he has already proven that he is for you, for you all the way. And so then, if Jesus Christ is the king of authority, the king of righteousness, the king of salvation, then it makes sense that Jesus Christ is coming again to reign for all eternity. Yes, Zechariah, later in the passage that we read, predicts Jesus' second coming in power and glory to rule over all the earth. In doing so, uh, we read that he will remove all the weapons of war, both from Israel and from all the enemies of Israel. When it says he will speak peace to the nations, it implies more than mere words. The power of his person and his presence will affect that change, will literally bring peace. Zechariah quotes from Psalm 72, verse eight, about the Messiah reigning from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth, which is poetic language, I think, for worldwide dominion. <clears throat> and Jesus Christ predicted his own return to earth in power and glory in Matthew 24, verse 30, where he says, at that time, the Son of Man will appear in the sky and all the nations of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. Brothers and sisters, when that happens, understand that every person will meet Jesus every person will meet Jesus. If you receive him now, you will joyfully meet him as your savior. And if you reject him now, you will meet him as your judge, treading the winepress of the fierce wrath of God Almighty. And so as believers, how are we to respond to the reality, to the truth, that Jesus Christ is king and that he is coming to reign forever. Well, Zechariah tells us that our response to Jesus, the coming king, ought to be joy and noise. Joy and noise. Zechariah highlights that double command, rejoice greatly and shout in triumph. So brothers and sisters, if Jesus is your king, Then lift up your head and your heart and rejoice, for your redemption draws near. Now, perhaps you're wondering, how can I rejoice greatly when there's so many overwhelming problems in the world and and in my personal life? I mean, Jesus coming is going to be great, yeah, but it seems like such a long way off. How can I truly rejoice with all my heart right now? Well, the answer is the same for us as it was for ancient Israel. We rejoice by faith in our coming king. Now, think about it. It would still be four long centuries from the time of of Zechariah's prophecy before Jesus came into the world. And it has been 20 long centuries since then. 2 Peter 3, verse 4 says, they will say, where is this coming that he promised? Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. Which I think highlights the bottom line for us. We either believe in the word of God or we don't. When he came the first time, Jesus fulfilled this prophecy and hundreds of others in the Old Testament, all of them, in fact. And so then I think it's perfectly reasonable for myself anyway to believe that all of the prophecies given about his second coming will also literally be fulfilled. But meanwhile, granted, we must live by faith. And faith in the hope of Christ's coming Zechariah tells us, will fill us with great joy, even and perhaps especially when we find ourselves in the middle of difficult trials and circumstances. And so as I close, I ask you, brothers and sisters, are you pursuing that kind of joy? You should be, because your king is coming. Amen. Let's pray.